0: Well, good evening, and uh, good to see you. Those of you who've been here every session, and especially anybody new here tonight, anybody new? Uh, There's a few new ones. Good, great to see you. Where have you been? (laughs) (laughs) But thank you for joining us tonight. And I'm going to read to you from Galatians chapter 2. And if you've been here, you know we've read these verses every session so far. And we're looking at them in uh, a little detail. To understand the gospel, both for the benefit of those of us who may not have entered into the fullness and freedom of the gospel, and for those of us who maybe have been, we've entered into the gospel, we know Christ our Savior, but we may be stagnated a bit, dried up a little bit. And I trust that these meetings might help to bring renewal, refreshment, and freshness and enable us to go on living in dependence upon the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for us in order to give himself to us and now lives within us and uh, we don't grow from parts of the gospel into other parts, we grow in the truth, don't we? And grow more deeply into it, let me read you then. I'm going to read just two verses tonight. We've been reading five every session so far. I'll read the first two Galatians two and verse 20. "I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. And then the next three verses I've read each time so far, and we referred to them last night, and we'll go back into them tomorrow night. But uh, this evening, I want to look at verse 21 in particular. On Sunday morning we talked about the first phrase, phrase, shall I say, of verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. What does that mean? And we talked about what it means to be justified, which is far more than being forgiven. It's that the case against us has been closed. It's a legal term. It's over. And we stand before God on the basis of the justice of God, not just as mercy, his mercy lies behind uh, the cross. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And then we talked on Sunday night about the second phrase, that I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. It's the spirit of Jesus Christ living in me that makes me a Christian. And we live in the power of that indwelling life. And how do we do that? Third phrase says, The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And we talked about what it means to live by faith last night. That faith is a disposition of trust in an object. For the purpose of allowing that object to work on my behalf. You put faith in a chair, the chair holds you in position. You're not doing something for the chair, the chair's doing something for you. You put faith in an airplane, it'll fly through the air. You don't do something for the airplane, it does something for you. You put faith in God, you don't do things for God, he does things for you and for me. And the life I now live, I live by faith. Whatever's not of faith is sin, What is not derived from dependence on God derives from independence of God which is itself the nature of sin. Now, let's just remind you in case you've forgotten and also to set the scene for tonight. In verse 21, he says, I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. In other words, if righteousness could be obtained simply by behaving ourselves, by keeping the rules, by obeying the law, then the grace of God is meaningless. The cross of Christ was unnecessary. which says then Christ died for nothing and the indwelling Christ would be just a fantasy. And the thrust of this verse is that righteousness cannot be gained through the law. And I think that's something that's worth talking about. Because the law was given by God. It's not an aberration. It's not some kind of uh, humanly created artificial structure that gives people some satisfaction that they're living in a good way if they conform to it because the law of God came from heaven and came from God himself. And I want to talk about this a little tonight and I trust this will bring liberty to some of us. Uh, Listen carefully. I hope it's not complex And I hope at the end it'll be liberating. But let me just uh, quickly give an overview of the law because that's a checkered history in Scripture. God gave the law to Moses. And by the way, when we talk about the law in this instance, I think we're talking about the moral law of God. There's the ceremonial law that was given also to Moses, which were all the rules and regulations by which people could approach God on the basis of shed blood through a priest or a high priest in a building, a temple, or a tabernacle before that. All kinds of rituals were enacted that took through to the holy of holies once a year where blood was poured on the Ark of the Covenant. And you may know all about that ceremonial law. If you read the book of Leviticus, you'll learn about it there, and it's probably the cleanest book in your Bible because nobody reads Leviticus, so there's no finger marks on it. There's nothing spilt on it. If you mark your Bible, it probably hasn't got many marks in it. (laughs) Though interestingly... The book of Leviticus has more of the words of God than any other book in the Bible when God himself spoke, which is interesting. God himself speaks most than the dullest book in the Bible. Well, that means that Leviticus is not a book that should be read. It's a book that should be studied. If ever they invite me back, which I'm sure they won't, I'd love to go through Leviticus with you because I think it's a remarkable book. And what it teaches us, because the moment Jesus said, it is finished on the cross, you remember what happened? Down in the temple where the priests were all busy, 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 the curtain which separated the holy place from the most holy place, the holy of holies, accessed only by the high priest once a year, only with blood, the curtain was ripped from top to the bottom. Meaning, God was no longer accessed through a curtain. That curtain's been torn down because now it's by the blood of Christ alone that we have access to God, etc. But all that went on in the temple was not a mistake. It was a foreshadowing of everything Christ accomplished. That's another story. There's also the civil law that you have in the Old Testament too, which was really the domestic law for the national life of Israel. And every country needs government and every country needs its rules. So there are all kinds of things that aren't really relevant to us. For instance, if you have a, a bull, a wild bull that breaks through your neighbor's fence and attacks his bull and kills it, who's responsible? You for having a wild bull or your neighbor having a weak fence? <laughs> There's actually a rule about that in Deuteronomy. Uh, now, we're not particularly concerned about that because most of us don't have bulls anyway. Uh, One or two of you might because one or two of you are farming, I'm sure. But there's this kind of civil law that was the domestic life of the nation. But the overriding issue that is spoken of when it speaks in general terms of the law of God is the moral law of God, which is the Ten Commandments Fleshed out in all kinds of detail as well in later parts. But the Ten Commandments given to Moses are Mount Sinai, written, you remember, by the finger of God, the only part of Scripture God himself actually wrote on those tablets of stone. And having given Moses the law on Mount Sinai, the historical books of the Old Testament record that law as the plumb line by which human behavior was measured. Then the poetic books meditate on that law and rejoice in that law. And if I quote you from Psalms, I'll give you a couple of quotes from Psalm 119. I delight in your decrees, verse 16 says. I will not neglect your law. I delight in your command, says verse 47. I love them. Verse 48 says, I lift up my hands to your commands, which I love. I meditate on on your decrees. Verse 70, I delight in your law, and many, 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 many more. So in the poetic books, the law is held to suddenly be delighted in, to be meditated on. The prophetic books preach the law. Isaiah came along and said it pleased the Lord for the sake of his righteousness to make his law great and glorious. Jeremiah said to the people of Judah, God said through Jeremiah, they forsook me and did not keep my law. And this was why the nation was in such a mess. When he came to Jesus, he affirms the law in the Sermon on the mount. He said, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest Letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. And so far, the law is utterly good, utterly consistent, utterly honored, until you get to Paul. When you come into the epistles, especially the epistles of Paul, and especially this epistle of Galatians, The word law becomes a dirty word. Let me read you in Galatians 3 and verse 10. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. Well, that's the very thing David said he meditates on and rejoices in and glories in. The very thing Jesus said, not one dot or cross is going to go from that law. And Paul says, if you rely on the law, you're under a curse. He says in chapter 3, verse 12, the law is the opposite of faith. In chapter 3, verse 13, Christ redeems us from the curse of the law. In verse 23, we're held prisoners by the law. Verse 19, the law could never impart life. Why this apparent change? why the law that is affirmed and loved all the way through to Jesus is disparaged as a curse when you read Paul's letters. Well, let me talk about the purpose of the law, first of all, and we'll come back to this and we'll see why Paul speaks in this way and uses these words. When God gave the law, what was the criteria by which he determined what the law should be? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, was it simply a set of arbitrary rules just to keep people out of mischief? You know, maybe in heaven a few angels Said to God one day, Those people you made down there on earth, they just keep getting into trouble all the time. They don't know how to live. You should give them some rules to teach them how to live. Really? Yeah. Well, what kind of rule do you think? Well, I think, for instance, they, they fall out and they kill each other. I think you should make a rule about not killing each other. Okay, that sounds a good one. Let's put that one down. Um, you shall not kill. And another angel says, yeah, but why do they kill? They kill because they want each other's property. I think you should make a rule about stealing because that'll be the cause of most killing. Oh, that's a good one. Let's put that one down. You shall not steal. Some just says, yeah, but why do they steal? They steal because they're greedy. Make a law about not being greedy. Well, how do you think we should word that? Uh, you shall not covet. That's uh, good. That's a good one. Let's put that down. You shall not covet. And somebody else says, yeah, but... Uh, you know, it's not that so much. It's the family life that's the problem down there. Some of these men are running off with other people otherwise. And okay, let's make a rule about that. You should not commit adultery. And somebody else, somebody else says, yeah, I agree. It's the family that's the problem. But it's not the parents, it's the kids. The kids are wild. Let's make a rule about them behaving themselves. Okay, children, honor your parents. Etc. cetera, et cetera. Somebody else says, no, I think the problem is that they're exhausted. They work so hard. They're, they're, they're just tired on each other's nerves all the time. I should, you should make a rule about having a day off. All oh, right, okay, how often? Well, let's say once every week, all right? Six-day share of labor, seven-day have no, uh, do not work, Etc. I mean, is that where the law came from, just to kind of help people to organize themselves? Is it kind of, this is for your good? no. That isn't where the law came from. The law is much more profound than that. And to understand what the law is, we need to understand what sin is. Let me explain this. The word sin, as you probably know, means to miss the mark. It was used in archery. You take an arrow and you aim it at a target. You release the arrow, and if you missed by a centimeter, it was called sin. If you missed by a meter, it was called sin. If you missed by 10 meters, it was called sin. If you missed by a kilometer, it was called sin. Shot in the opposite direction, was called sin because sin is not a measurement of how bad we are. It's a measurement of how good we are not, if you understand the difference. There is a sense in which God isn't interested in how bad people are. He's interested in how good people are not. If you miss by an inch, or you miss by a mile, or a centimeter, or a kilometer, it's irrelevant. See, if you miss a bus by a minute, or you miss a bus by 10 minutes, or you miss a bus by 30 minutes, It's irrelevant, you missed the bus. you? You don't congratulate yourself when you miss the bus by a minute and say, wow, I only missed it by a minute today, fantastic. It's even more frustrating, isn't it? And you see, that means that if sin is to miss the mark, we have to know what the mark is that we've missed. Sin is a relative word. You don't know what sin is unless you know what the mark is. And there are two verses, only two verses in Scripture that tell us what all sin is. The first is in 1 John 3 and verse 4, where John writes there, 1 John 3, 4, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. So John says there, every time anybody sins, no matter what the nature of that sin is, you know what they've done? They have broken the law of God because the law of God, if my left hand here represents the law of God, sin is always coming short of what the law is demanding. Well, you say, okay, if the law is the target that we have missed, why didn't God make it a little bit easier to encourage us a bit more? Well, let's look at the second verse. It describes what all sin is, and you probably know this verse, Romans 3 in verse 23, which says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So there, Paul says, every time anybody sins, whatever the nature of their sin is, you know what they've done, they have come short of the glory of God. My right hand represents the glory of God, whatever that is. Now, if Paul says, The target we've missed is the law of God, Sorry, if John says the target mist is the law of God and Paul says the target of is the glory of God, what that tells us is this, that the law of God and the glory of God equal the same thing. So to answer the question, why is the law of God what it is, we have to ask another question, what is the glory of God? And the glory of God appears with slight variation of meaning in Scripture depending on its context. But essentially, the glory of God is the character of God, the moral character of God. So when John wrote in John 19 about Jesus, he said, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And when John says We saw his glory. What did he see? Was it a bright light suspended above Jesus' head in the shape of a lifesaver? As artists sometimes portray? No, he's saying we saw in Jesus Christ exactly what God is like. So those of us who grew up in Nazareth and were boys with Jesus. And kicked the ball up and down the road with him. Went hiding in the hills with him. And hunting in the woods with him. In the way he acted. The way he reacted. The way he treated his friends. The way he talked to his mother. We saw what God was like. When he began his. Work in his father's carpenter's shop, the way he went about his business, the way he paid his bills on time, the way he invoiced accurately for the work that he'd done, the way he got up early in the morning to go and build, put some of his roof back on that had blown off in a gale the night before. We saw what God was like when he began his public ministry. And when a man came down the road ringing a bell saying, unclean, unclean, keep out of my way with a contagious disease, Jesus would cross the road and touch. The man who nobody was supposed to touch you have noticed Jesus touched lepers by the way he always touched lepers when he healed them we saw what God was like when he sat with a woman everybody else was embarrassed to be seen with we saw what God was like when the disciples tried to shoo the kids away because they were a nuisance they were slowing things down and Jesus said no no don't do that let them come to me and they came and climbed all over him we saw what God was like Because the glory of God is the moral character of God. And if that was true of Jesus, it was intended not only to be true of Jesus, but to be true of every human being. Because when God in the beginning said, let's make man in our image, that image is not a physical one, of course. It's a moral image. If we were... To observe Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, we would have seen in the way they acted and reacted, the way they talked and treated each other, we would have seen what God was like. But then they disobeyed, fell into sin, and came short of the glory of God and no longer showed what God was like. Because sin is failure to portray the truth about God. That's why it's coming short of the glory of God. Now, if the law of God and the glory of God equal the same thing, then the Ten Commandments were given to reveal what God is like in His moral character, so that we might understand what we are supposed to be like, having been made in His image. So, when in the law God said, "You shall not steal," the reason is not because stealing isn't nice, though of course it isn't. But that isn't the reason. The reason is much more profound than that. The reason God said you shall not steal is because God is not a thief and you are made to be in his image so do not steal. When he said you shall not bear false witness, it's because God never tells lies and you're made to be in his image so do not bear false witness. When he said you shall not commit it's because God is totally faithful and you are made to be in his image so don't ever commit adultery. When he said you shall not murder... That is arbitrarily, take somebody's life. God has the power of life and death. He doesn't arbitrarily kill. So do not murder. Even when he said six days shall you labor, on the seventh day do no work, he tells us why in that law. It says because God rested on the seventh day. Not because he was tired, of course. The point was not that he was exhausted after six days of hard creating and needed a day off, (laughs) God rests on the seventh day, not because he was tired, but because he was finished. And we rest in the finished sufficiency of God. Even when it says, children, honor your parents, it's because in the Trinity, the Son says, I always do those things that please the Father, and you are made to be in his image. And God is both plural and singular, and in that relationship of the Godhead, is how we are to behave. And so the law is not an arbitrary set of rules, just guidelines to keep out of mischief. Its primary purpose is to reveal what God is like, the moral character of God, so we might understand what we are supposed to be like having been created in his image. This is why the law itself is never criticized in Scripture. Why in the Old Testament, the law is a delight, why we're to hide it in our hearts, why we meditate on it, why Jesus said not the least stroke of a pen will disappear from the law until everything is accomplished, it's because the law is as immutable, that means as unchangeable as God himself is, because it expresses his character, his moral character. But the problem with the law on tablets of stone is it is external to us. And the need of the human heart is not have some external guideline to live by. It is having that same life and character of God internally implanted within us, as we're going to see in just a moment. And so the law, though it is true, It can accurately demand righteousness, but it can never produce righteousness. And imposed from the outside, all it can do is what I am going to explain and describe as is house train (laughs) us. You know, we, we house train pets, don't we? Uh, we had a couple of kittens when our kids were smaller. They've thankfully gone to wherever cats go to. Purgatory or something like that. <laughs> I'm not sure where they go. <laughs> what? Purgatory. <laughs> That's a good one. Hey, purr, yeah. <laughs> wherever they go. Uh, anyway, they've gone. But when they came to us, uh, I, I, uh, my one of my daughters came home one day and said, a friend of mine has a cat and the cat has got four kittens and two kittens have got a home and two of them haven't. Can we have them? So we, in a moment of weakness, said, sure. So they came to live with us. They had a clue how to behave. They did things on the carpet that we never do on the carpet. (laughs) They would jump up onto the chair and onto the table And stick their noses in things they have no business to stick their noses in. And we had to teach them. We don't behave like that in our house. So when they did a mess on the carpet, we kind of stuck a nose in it. Mm, Get a good sniff of this and then put them out to the door. And they got the message, I'm not supposed to do that on the carpet. And to go out, we put a cat flap in. We invest in the cat flap. You know, they go boop and go out and back in again. We taught them that they don't jump onto the table. They don't even hang around when we are eating because we never fed them when they, we were eating. So they never hung around waiting for things to fall off the table. They probably had no idea what we were doing when we sat around the table. They weren't allowed to jump onto the counter in the kitchen. And before long, they, 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 they learned to behave perfectly well. And if you were to come to our house, you'd be impressed with how well behaved our cats were. They behaved perfectly as long as we were there. LAUGHTER but if we left in the morning and Hillary too left and we left maybe a piece of meat thawing on the counter or left the butter out, you come back at night and there's tongue prints from the butter, <laughs> and there's all there's trying to chunk missing from the meat <laughs> because although when we're there, they have a conscience about not jumping onto the table. (laughs) It's not a moral conscience. conscience. It's only an animal conscience, which I will call a consequential conscience, which means that they don't do the things they're not supposed to do only because they don't want the consequences (laughs) of getting into trouble so if we're there, they behave perfectly. But if we're there, there are no consequences, they think. <laughs> and they do what they like. You know, it's the conscience, a consequential conscience, is, is the kind of conscience that you have when you're driving your car down the highway and you glance in the mirror to see if there's a cop car on the street. You don't actually have a moral conscience about that. You would drive at 150 kilometres an hour if nobody was looking. You just have a consequential conscience. I can't afford to get another fine. And you know, it's the easiest thing in the world to become a house trained Christian. When we try to live according to the law, according to rules that are only externally applied, and there are many young people and I've met and talked with and seen the tears of a number of young Christian people whose conduct, conduct conforms the prescribed patterns they've been taught, that makes them acceptable to the church to which they adhere. And they conform, not because of any deep spiritual conviction about these things, but they have been religiously house-trained or evangelically house-trained. And they seem to do okay until you send them off to a secular university. Or detach them from the mold to which they've been conformed. And faced with the cold facts of life and the temptations of the world, they discover they have no real conscience about anything. They simply conformed to their Christian culture. They'd simply been house trained. And the results are usually disastrous. And you know you've been house trained when you behave differently around Christians to when you're with other people. And that's all the law can do. And that's why legalism usually masks our own spiritual need by a veneer of conformity that looks okay, but which hides the lack of genuine spiritual life. And it puts us in a legal straitjacket that is almost unbearable to live with so when nobody's looking, whew, you can relax. I've met and sat and talked and wept with Christians who will drive away from home to behave in a way they would never behave at home. And I could tell you some horrendous stories about that. Because legalism, you see, and the law imposes only a substitute for genuine spiritual life. Because true spiritual life derives from the life of Jesus Christ implanted in us by the Holy Spirit and works his way out in his fruit, which is love, joy, peace, Other ways of expressing the same thing, but it works from the outside, from the inside out, not from the outside in. That's why Paul says in his message here is that a life lived under the law, which addresses only the externals of our behavior, can never save us because the law was designed to be what he calls, and I like the King James Version word of this, what he calls a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. How is the law a schoolmaster that brings us to Christ? By exposing to us what it demands we cannot produce. We can't do it. And in good conscience the only place we can go is in desperation to Christ who becomes the source of our righteousness and our behavior. That's why righteousness, he says, it cannot be gained under the law. Unrighteousness can be learned from the law. It exposes our sin. But although unrighteousness can be learned from the law, righteousness can never be gained by the law. And so if the purpose of the law is to reveal the character of God, the effect of the law is is to reveal the failure of humanity. And that is vital for us to understand. So when Moses came down the mountain with a tablets of stone in his hand, you remember, the first command said, you'll have no other gods before me for the simple reason there is no other god. Second command, you not make any graven image and bow down before it. And while Moses had been up Mount Sinai for six weeks, the Israelites in the valley had got a bit... Frustrated and bored, and they pulled their gold, melted it down under Aaron's leadership, built a golden calf, and when Moses came down the mountain with a tap of stone in his hand, the first command saying, no other gods, no graven image, they're having some kind of spiritual orgy around this golden calf. And Moses was shocked, you remember. So shocked, he took the tablets of stone and he smashed them on the ground, remember? Had to go back to the mountain and get some more. <laughs> Moses was shocked, but God wasn't. Because God did not learn something new about human beings. Human beings learned something new about themselves. That I cannot be what the Lord tells me I should be. That's why Romans 7, verse 7 says, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. In other words, I could up my neck in sin with a clear conscience. And then the law came. And the reason why people live lives that are in complete violation of the law of God, and they do so with a clear conscience, don't tell yourself that people who are living in certain ways are deliberately being Breaking the law of God. They don't know what the law of God is. They're living as best they know how. According to values. That's the big in postmodernism, rules are no longer the criteria, values are the criteria. Which is why you hear me talking about them all the time. But when the law came, it exposes, as, as Romans 7, verse 7 says. I don't know what it was except the law. I got to my neck in sin with a totally clear conscience and the law came. Uh-oh. We became exposed. Romans 3.20 says, Through the law, we become conscious of sin. And God has to teach us our failure. It's one of the most important things in entering into the fullness of the Christian life. Sometimes we know it before we become Christian. Sometimes we just know the symptoms. We know I am a sinner and we confess it. But then we realize there's something deeper than that. It's my own intrinsic inability to be what I'm supposed to be. And Jesus rubbed that in in the sermon on the Mount, you remember, when he said, uh, he said, have you heard it said you must not kill? And I imagine the people listening to him said, yes, we've heard that one. That's a good rule. That's a good law. I sent you said, Jesus, if you are angry with your brother, even though you'd never dare put a knife into his back or put a bullet between his eyes, you are already guilty of murder. And they probably said, what? Have you heard it said you must not commit adultery? Yeah, we know that law. That's a good one. I sent you, said Jesus, if you look at a woman and you lust after her, even though you do not know her address, even though you don't know her name, you'd never dare go knock on her door anyway, you're already guilty of adultery. What? You heard it said, nine for nine or tooth for tooth? Sounds reasonable, doesn't it? I sent you, if somebody hit you in the face, don't hit them back. Turn the other cheek. If they take your one mark, go two. If they take your coat, give your cloak as well. Have you heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy, I said to you, love your enemy. Pray for those who despitefully use you. And I can imagine the beads of perspiration standing up on the foreheads of these people as they probably turned to each other and said, I thought he was going to be preaching good news. This is terrible news. It was bad enough before. We couldn't do these things. Now we can't even think about them. What was he doing? He is bringing to the point of realizing that in myself and of myself, I cannot be what I'm supposed to be. And in case anybody missed it, he finished it in the Sermon on the Mount by saying this. Be perfect, therefore, even as your Heavenly Father is perfect. In other words, ladies and gentlemen, would you please be perfect? I beg your pardon? How perfect, did you say? As perfect as God. How do you think they responded? Do you think they said, well, that was a good message, wasn't it? I enjoyed that. I think I'll get the recording. (laughs) No. It says how they responded. They were amazed at his teaching. Not because it was so good, (laughs) but because it was so ridiculous. So impossible. Because one thing that God has to do is to expose us, our failure that we realize I cannot be what God requires me to be. I cannot do it. The law can demand it, but he can't produce it. And I can't produce it. Which is why the good news begins with bad news. like when you go to visit your doctor. If there's any medical person here tonight, forgive this illustration. <laughs> but when you go to visit your doctor, the first thing they usually want to know is what's wrong with you. They're pretty negative people, aren't they, when you think about it? <laughs> you know, you walk into a doctor's surgery, and supposing you're into positive thinking and positive speaking and positivity and all these things, You walk in, you say, good morning, doctor. I'd like a bottle of pink medicine, please. Say, I can't just give you some pink medicine. Yes, you gave me some last time. Yeah, strawberry flavored stuff. I can't just give you some pink medicine. What's wrong with you? You think, oh, here we go again. That's all they ever want to know. (laughs) And so he asks you some embarrassing questions. Do you get up at night? How many times? 64? <laughs> what color is it? Blue. Oh my. You're sick. Come here. Does this hurt? Ah, yes, it hurts. Good. What about here? Ah, yeah, that hurts too. Good. What do you mean, good? No, no, what's wrong with you? You've got myxomatosis. (laughs) That's a disease that rabbits get, actually. But I've got a solution. It's a bottle of pink medicine. (laughs) But you see, don't shortcut the necessary process of discovering your own inherent bankruptcy. Some of us discover it before you come to Christ is why we come to Christ. Some of us have seen the symptoms. I did it, and I did that, I did the other. And we come in confession, repentance. It's only later we realize there's something much deeper that's broken in me. And what is ultimately broken, as we saw the other night, is we've become separated from the life of God in the language of Paul. But then when Jesus said this about, in the Son of the Man, about not... Uh, Not one dot, not one cross of the law will disappear, etc. He also said, do not think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. What does he mean? How is the law going to be fulfilled in our life? Or, change the language without changing the meaning, how is the glory of God going to be restored into our lives? Because sin is breaking the law. How's the law going to be fulfilled? And sin is coming short of the glory of God. How is the glory of God going to be restored into our lives? Let me read you three verses in three different parts of Scripture. First in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 25 to 27. Paul says there, I've become its servant, that's the servant of the church, by the commission God gave me, to present you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. Let me pause there. He says, this is now the message, the word of God in its fullness. There's nothing to add to this. And includes a mystery that's been hidden for ages and generations. In other words, when Moses condemned have man with the law of God in his hand, He went back to his tent that night, sat down, scratched his head, and said, there's something missing. Something missing here. When a prophet preached, he'd go back home, sit down in his front room, scratch his head, and say, there's something missing here. There's a mystery here. Now at last, says Paul, that mystery has been made known. Verse 27. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of what? Glory. And that does not mean heaven. In evangelical slang, we say people die and go to glory, meaning heaven. That's not the way the New Testament uses that word. Heaven will be glorious, but glory is what we'll come short of. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's our problem. What's the solution? Christ in you is your hope of hitting the target, your hope of the glory of God. Let me read you the two other verses, Jeremiah 31 and uh, verse uh, 33, where Jeremiah talks about the new covenant, or God talks to him about the new covenant he is giving to the people of Israel. Jeremiah 31, And he says there in verse 33, this is the covenant I'll make with the house of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I'll be their God, they'll be my people. This new covenant is not going to involve a rewriting of the law. It's going to involve a relocating of the law. Instead of being on tablets of stone, I'm going to put that law in their minds, in their hearts. I will be their God. Here's the third verse. Now tie them together. Ezekiel 36 and verse 27. And God again is speaking about the new covenant, this time to Ezekiel. Ezekiel 36, 27. I'll put my spirit In you, that's going to be new, by the way. Jesus said to the disciples in the upper room that the Holy Spirit, he is with you. He will be in you. That's going to be something much deeper and richer. Now, speaking of that, I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. And i put my Holy Spirit in you and here's the result. You'll follow my decrees, you'll keep my laws. Now, put these verses together. Christ in you is your hope of hitting the target, glory. I'll put my law in you, in your heart, in your mind. I'll be your God. I'll put my spirit in you and I'll move you to follow my decrees and keep my laws. And what that means, I suggest to you, is that what was a command under the old covenant is going to become a promise. Under the New Covenant. Because under the Old Covenant, the law of God was external, imposed on us to teach us what God is like. Under the New Covenant, the life of God is going to be internal, creating in us new desires, new resources to express his own character what he is like. In other words, the ends are the same of the law of God and the indwelling life of God, but the means are totally different. And the commands externally applied under the old covenant are now going to be promises internally applied by the indwelling spirit. Let me tell you a true story. of A man who came to Christ in Britain in a prison in the north of England. He was a thief, quite a sophisticated thief, and had been jailed. And while he was there, apparently somebody had come to the prison every Sunday afternoon, had a Bible study for people who wanted to join, and this man joined, and he became a Christian. When his sentence was over, he's released from prison. And one of the first things he wanted to do was to visit the church. You did know which church to go to. So you picked one at random, went in, sat down, looked up at the front, and there in the front of the church were the Ten Commandments, five down one side and five down the other. It was probably a church of England, an uh, Anglican church, because that's the kind of thing they do, <laughs> put those things up on the wall. <laughs> and he thought to himself, that's the last thing I want to see. I know my history, my weakness, my failure, last thing I want to do is sit here and read those laws that only condemn me but as the service went on he began to read them and his story is that when he read them he read them completely differently previously when he read them there had been a command that said you shall not steal this time he read it It was a promise that said you shall not steal And if I can put words into his mouth, he didn't say this. If I can put words into his mouth, he could have said, why? Because I put my spirit in you, and I'll move you to follow my decrees and keep my laws. It used to say, you shall not bear false witness. It was a command, but this morning it said, you shall not bear false witness. It's a promise. He might have said, thank you, Lord, why? Because I put my law in your mind, in your heart, I'm your God. It used to say, you shall not commit adultery. It was a command this morning. It said, you shall not commit adultery. It was a promise. Thank you, Lord. Why? Because Christ in you now is your hope of hitting the target. You've come short of your hope of the glory of God. It used to say, you shall not covet. It was a command this morning. It said, you shall not covet. Thank you. Why? Because I've come not to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill it. Make it work, and the very things that had only ever been commands that had condemned became promises that liberated. Which is why, in Romans 8, and we do this verse Romans 8 and verse 3, Paul says, There, what the law was powerless to do, and it was weakened by the flesh, in other words, the human. Ability was not there to fulfill it. We couldn't conform to it. What the law was powerless to do, and it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering, that is to take the guilt of our sin, and so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. What the law could not do, God did by giving Christ as our sacrifice, as substitute, in order then that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. When the law says, you shall not steal, you don't. Why? Because you're more disciplined? No, because the life of God is in you now. And he works in us to will and to act according to his good purpose. When the law said you shall not commit adultery, you don't anymore. Why not? Because the Spirit of God in you now gives new motivation, new power, new resources. When we grasp this, we can read the law again, but with a new pair of glasses and we discover they've become promises. When we understand this, we have a whole new set of promises in the Bible. It used to be laws. Somebody here tonight, I don't know, with a problem with stealing? I don't know. I've got a promise for you. It used to be a law. It's next chapter 20. It used to be written on tablets of stone. Now it's a promise written by the Spirit in your heart. It says, you shall not steal. God can break that. Anybody here that's greedy? Here's a promise. Used to be a command in Exodus 20 on top of stone. Now a promise written by the Spirit in your heart. It says, you shall not covet. You will be satisfied. Anybody here facing sexual temptations you can hardly cope with? Here's a promise. Used to be a command written on top of stone. Now a promise written by the Spirit in your heart. You shall not commit adultery. You won't if you're living in dependence upon him and obedience to him. Somebody finds your priorities all messed up and things become important that shouldn't be. Well, here's a promise. used to be a command. Now a promise written by the Spirit in your heart. You will have no other gods before me. You'll get your priorities right. You see the law remains the same because it reveals the character of God but it's no longer an external force that can only house train us. It can't change us. It now becomes an internal work of the Spirit of God in us and it becomes promises. That doesn't mean of course we don't need discipline. We do need discipline. And Scripture talks clearly about that. But that discipline is not to work godliness into our lives. It's to allow the life of the Spirit of God in us to express itself through a body that obeys orders. So I'm intrigued by the fact that when Paul talks about the fact that uh, the Christian life is like a race, and some people get disqualified in the race, cause they don't live it, they don't run it properly. He talks about that as an analogy of his own life and ministry, and he gives his answer to it in First Corinthians nine twenty-seven. He says, I beat my body and make it my slave, so after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. I found that interesting. He doesn't say, you know, I want to make sure that I run the race and I keep to the track and that I... Come to the end and I win the prize. So I must pray more. He did not say that. I must read my Bible more. He did not say that. He says, no, I've got to knock my body into shape. Why? Because the spirit of God in me needs to express himself to a body that learns to obey and respond. That's why when Jesus and Solomon talked about he's kind of fulfilled the law. And then he said things like, I've quoted them already, uh, don't commit adultery. But I say to you, if you look at a woman lust after her, you've already committed adultery. And then he said this, if your eye leads you into sin, gouge it out. Your hand leads you into sin, cut it off. Is he changing the subject? No, he's not changing the subject at all. Because the agents of sexual arousal are sight and touch. And talking about adultery, then lust saying, if your eye leads you into sin, if your hand leads you into sin, elsewhere, if your foot leads you into sin, Gouge out your eye, cut off your hand, cut off your foot. We know that's not literal. We don't mutilate our bodies. But he's saying, if you've got a problem in this area, and the Spirit of God comes to live within you, you can learn very bad habits and develop very bad, even addictive behavior. So bring your eye under control. And especially in the day of pornography, there's so many who get hooked into this. Or what they see. And how you gouge out your eye in that sense. And cut off your hand and cut off your foot. That's not a decision tonight that happens tomorrow. That's a process. But nevertheless, that's not to make you godly. That's to allow the God who is living in you by his spirit to express himself through you. So there is discipline. But that discipline comes from the dependence. God works in us to will first the motivation, the desire, our whole aspirations change and to act according to his good pleasure and we need to learn to allow the spirit of God to be expressed in us and through us. God's provision for life, for holiness, fruitfulness is himself indwelling us. But now he needs to live in a body that learns to obey him and that's why dependence on him must be coupled with discipline together. In fact, I see dependence and discipline like two wings on an airplane. Which wing is the most important wing on an airplane? The left one or the right one? (laughs) Where you have discipline without dependence and you have legalism, that's the whole problem we've talked about. If you have dependence without discipline, you'll become disillusioned that you cause and say, Oh, the Christian life doesn't work. Never speaks of the spirit controlling us, you know, in scripture. It says the fruit of the spirit is self control. That he in us can express himself through us. Does that mean if we do it all right, we can be perfect? <laughs> The answer is no, and i finish with this. The answer is no. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 3, in verse 18, uh, 2 Corinthians 3, in verse 18, 17 and 18, let me read you what Paul says there. He says, um, Now the Lord is the Spirit, where the Spirit of the Lord is there is freedom, and we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, that is nothing between us and himself, we reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Notice the tense there. Not in the past tense, we have been transformed into his likeness. Or the future tense, we will be transformed. But the present continuous tense, with unveiled faces reflect his glory, and we're being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory the glory we have sinned and come short of the glory Christ in you is the hope of this is with ever increasing glory the nature's spiritual growth is not that we know more Bible this year than last year that's important go to more meetings this year than last year that's good the nature's spiritual growth is there's more evidence of Christ this year than there was last year you won't see it of course we see the battle behind the scenes It's your wife who sees it. It's your husband who sees it. It's your kids who see it. It's the neighbors who see it. They might not see what it is. But the life of Jesus increasingly is expressed from one degree of glory to another until one day we will be, what the Bible calls, glorified, which is to be fully restored into his image. So Paul is saying here, I've been crucified with Christ. Yet I live, but not I. Christ lives in me. Life I live, I live by faith in him. I trust and depend on him. Because I do not set aside the grace of God. The grace is God doing things for me. Because if righteousness could be obtained through the law, then that doesn't need Christ. He died to have died for nothing no what the Lord demands he now in us produces and fulfills so this is the gospel actually if you're not a Christian tonight this is why you need to be one because this brings you back to being what human beings were created to be in the beginning indwelt by the spirit of God the purpose of expressing his character and nature in us and if you are a Christian this is the journey you're on We can grieve the spirit. Scripture warns us about that. We can quench the spirit. Scripture warns us about that. We can allow the flesh to express itself. Or we grow increasingly in love for, dependence on, and obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ who lives in us by his spirit. And we will be increasingly. Conformed into his likeness and image. And if you don't know Christ, then uh, this is the place they give your life to him, and invite him to give his life to you. It's a mutual exchange. I give my life to him; he gives his life to me. He comes to live within us, and you'll never be the same again. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful. The gospel is not just dealing with symptoms, it's not just cleaning us up to make us respectable for heaven one day, but it is implanting in us the spirit of God himself, the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ, that in us and through us you might express yourself in a way which shows your presence in us that we might be conformed into your image. Give us a deeper appetite for this, a deeper confidence in your work in us. We want to be disciplined people whose lives express your presence in a way that brings blessing and enrichment to other people. We pray this in Jesus' name.